0: The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Let's take our Bibles now, if you would, and open them to Leviticus chapter 2. Our study is the five sacrificial offerings in the Old Testament that were given to Moses as God appeared to him in the wilderness of Sinai. These sacrifices are described in the first chapters of the book of Leviticus. And Leviticus is a book about the duties of the Levitical priesthood. And our purpose in these messages is to take each one of these offerings and learn their meaning and see why God gave these as a part of of Israel's worship. We have discussed the first offering, that's in Leviticus chapter 1. And now we're in the second chapter, that first one was about the whole burnt offering. Now we're in the second chapter of Leviticus and this describes the, the meal offering or the grain offering. And just to remind you, again, you'll see in the King James Version that it says the meat offering, but meat is just a general word for food, and actually there is no meat in this particular offering. This is the second offering, and uh, I'm quite a bit ahead of you in studying and preparing these messages. And, and I do have to say, after the work that, that I've put in on this, that I'm really happy that Randy asked this question a few months ago because this has been a good refresh for me to go back to what we preached on before back in the year 2005. I mean, any time that we have the opportunity to think about Christ and learn more about Him and just open up our understanding of who Christ is and what He's done for us, that's just a very pleasing experience. So I've really enjoyed looking back at this subject again. As the author of Hebrews said in the first chapter, God spoke in diverse ways in times past, but he said in these last days, God had spoken to us through his Son, Jesus Christ. And it happens that the numerous ways that God spoke before Christ came are one of these ways is in these offerings. Before he became incarnate, and learn, we learn from him now, this is what was learned prior to Christ coming into the world. Now the text is Leviticus chapter 2, and the entire chapter gives regulations for the offering. In the 6th chapter we see more, and we learn there some more about the priest duty and receiving the offerings and then making the offering for the people. And since we read both of those long passages a couple of weeks ago, we're not going to read the entire chapter again. But with your Bibles open, we'll refer to the chapter and discuss... Uh, different aspects of the offering. So let's just read three verses tonight. First three verses of Leviticus uh, Leviticus chapter 2. And when any will offer a, a meat offering unto the Lord, his offering shall be of fine flour, and he shall pour oil upon it, and put frankincense thereon. And he shall bring it to Aaron's sons, the priest, and he shall take thereout his handful of the flour thereof and of the oil thereof, with all the frankincense thereof. And the priest shall burn the memorial of it upon the altar to be an offering made by fire of a sweet savor unto the Lord. And the remnant of the meat offering shall be Aaron and his sons. It is the thing most holy of the offerings of the Lord made by fire. Now I'd like to go back to the previous message for just a few minutes. Uh, There was some good information in that that message and uh, it's worthy of review. We spent most of our time considering the meaning of this offering for Israel in the immediate context. The the interpretation of a text is called, it's hermeneutic. And we looked at this from the perspective of the ancient Israelites. What did they perceive as they partook of this offering? As they did this, what did they think in their minds was the reason that God gave them this offering? The original context is, is somewhat different from how we understand the meaning of this. Uh, Israel was not really concerned with, with types. Uh, they couldn't understand the types in the offering because the antitype of this offering had not yet come. That, of course, is Jesus Christ. So they couldn't know all that we know about this. They couldn't know all the implications of it. But it doesn't mean that as they made the sacrifice that they did it without thought, that there's nothing going through their mind as why God would have them to do this. Now, we recognize, as we look back at these offerings, that they're types of Christ. Our hermeneutic is different. They didn't know. Although they did know that what they did concerned great truths of Jehovah God, the God that they worship, their understanding was different than ours. We understand because Christ came. We we know from the New Testament. We've learned from that. We have that to enlighten the Old Testament text. But in the immediate context for Israel, the meal offering signified their dependence upon God, God's providential care for them, that He was the source of their provision. The difficulty of procuring a grain offering in the wilderness is only solved by one thing, and that is God supplies their needs. God replenishes when they need. Now, at first to us, the grain offering looks like the easiest one to make, this looks like the most inexpensive offering to make, but it wasn't because obtaining grain in the desert was not easy. That's a very difficult thing. It's more expensive, actually, than the animals because they could continue to take from their flocks as they reproduced. They didn't stay in one place for a very long period of time, and so growing a crop to feed 2 million or more Israelites in the desert wasn't possible. Some of the grain that they had was no doubt brought out of Egypt when they came. Some of it could be found in wild wheat that uh, grew in the wilderness in that area. Probably most of it may have been bought from the trade routes that came up out of Egypt going through the Sinai Peninsula to towards the other parts of, of the known world then. But the main part of this is they had to trust God for this offering. They had to trust Him that He would replenish the supply. It was also a sign of dependence on God when they got into Canaan. In Canaan, uh, they depended on the rain at harvest time. That's a little bit different than the way things happened in Egypt, because there in Egypt, they lived in Goshen in the delta of the Nile, and the Egyptians were very good at irrigation, and so they took water from the Nile River, irrigated their crops, and they weren't as dependent on that continual rain as the people would be when they got into Canaan. And so when Israel got into Canaan, the farming's different. They have to depend upon God to to give them the rain, and so when they brought their first fruits, God told them to bring the first fruits, and they had to have that dependence on God that God will bring in the further fruits, that the rest of the harvest will come in, that God will supply the rain that they need. Now from that part of it, we that are in the New Testament era learn a very good lesson that we are to give to God first, we're to give to God first before we take what we need for ourselves. And so we trust God with our resources, knowing that he will take care of us, just as Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6. But if we look at that, just that, that's a minimalist view of this offering. There's so much more that we know about it, considering that Christ has come. So the New Testament hermeneutic has much more to say, and we can see Christ in many, many ways as we break down each part of this To see how it relates to Christ. And so now what we'll do is we'll shift from the Israelites' perspective to go to the Christian perspective where we see these beautiful pictures of Christ. So this evening we begin the outline of the passage. Last week we didn't get this far, so tonight we begin the outline of the passage. And we'll start with the sign of the offering. The sign of the offering. Now as the burnt offering was before this, was a sweet savor offering so is this grain offering sweet savor. That means that this is an offering that's pleasing to the Lord because it represents the sweetness of Christ and His perfect obedience to the Father. In this offering, there isn't a picture of sin. And I'll repeat this several times as we go through our study of sacrifices. Remember this, that when you see sacrifice in the Bible, you don't always think of sin because this is not a sin offering. This is an offering that has to do with the life of Christ, the perfections of Christ, how Christ is a pleasing aroma to God. So the meal offering then is designed to be a picture of Christ's life. And in many of the aspects of the tabernacle worship, we see things like we discussed a little bit this morning in the forum class. We see Christ's dual nature in the tabernacle, the hypostatic union, which means that Christ was both God and man is often depicted in the pictures of the tabernacle. For example, you have the Ark of the Covenant, which is a wooden box that's overlaid with gold. That wood represents the humanity of Christ. The gold represents his deity. Then you have uh, the boards that make up the outer framework of the tabernacle. They are wood overlaid with gold. Then you have the bar, the bars that run along the length of the tabernacle that secure the those boards and hold them in place and give it stability. That is also wood that's overlaid with gold. As you enter into Tabernacle, there you see in front of you an altar of incense just before going into the most holy place, the, uh, the Holy of Holies. And there, that altar of incense is wood overlaid with gold, depicting the humanity and the deity of Jesus Christ. In one person, you have humanity and deity in the incarnate Son of God. But this offering is not about deity. This is a picture of Christ in His humanity. And so what we see here is Christ from the human side as the perfect man. The perfect man sent down from heaven, perfect in sanctified holiness. And He is the picture of the perfect man because of the fall. Adam was a perfect man when He was created. In the original creation, He is perfect and He lived under... A covenant of obedience and had he remained in that state then his children would also have been raised in that same covenant and they would be blessed by their obedience to God Adam was a representative man that means he stands good for each of us and since Adam fell from that covenant of obedience we are also fallen we inherit that nature from Adam so Adam fell which meant that there's a different covenant It's necessary for man to be reconciled to God. So the righteousness of God can't be fulfilled by fallen man, and so it has to be fulfilled by another. And that's why Christ is the second man who came down from heaven, who stands in our place to fulfill this covenant of works for us. Now, this might be just a little bit technical, but stay with me for just a minute. I think that we are still under this covenant of works. Now most of the time when you study this, people say, well the covenant of works is over. In a sense there is it is over. But I think that we're still under a covenant of works. It's still in place. But the difference is that the covenant of works cannot be kept by us. It can only be kept by the perfect man. And his obedience stands good for us and we're justified by faith in him. So God still requires good works of obedience but because we can't do it, Christ's perfect obedience is substitute for us. And so his good works, his holy life is imputed to us for our justification. Romans five nineteen For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, that's Adam, so by the obedience of one, Jesus Christ, shall many be made righteous. 1 Corinthians fifteen forty five And so it is written, The first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The last Adam was made a quickening, a life-giving spirit. So this offering gives this view of Christ as the perfect man who could not do what Adam, or did what Adam could not do. Now, in the last message, we saw how this offering also matches the second half of the law. The second half is that good work of loving our neighbor. The burnt offering... And the meal offering were offered at the same time. And the reason they were is because it showed both sides of Christ. It showed both sides of man's duties. One, his duty to God, that's in the burnt offering. And then secondly, his duty to his fellow man, that's in the grain offering. So we see Christ complete in that picture. So this particular offering is a good works offering. Uh, And that's the reason that the labors of the hands can be brought As an offering, because it represents Christ and his humanity and his good works. So, as an overview of the type of life that Christ lived, I would like to mention two aspects of his life before we get into the individual elements of his offering. First, Christ's life was a life of suffering. From the beginning, it was planned that Christ's life would be a life of suffering, it was designed that. He wouldn't be favored in his birth as a king is favored. He wasn't born in a palace. He wasn't born to a rich family. There was no rank and privilege for Christ, for Jesus, that would have set him apart from any other person. Philippians tells us that he divested himself of glory. Outwardly, he brought none of his glory down with him, and neither did Christ intend that he would have a lesser glory among men by being a king, by... Uh, an earthly king, by being a rich person, by being a person of notoriety. He was not going to have a lesser glory. Simeon prophesied of this in his de- in, uh, Christ's dedication in Luke chapter 2. And Simeon blessed them and said unto Mary his mother, Behold, this child is set for the fall and rising again of many in Israel, and for a sign which shall be spoken against. Yet a sword shall pierce through thine own soul also." that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. There Simeon predicted the suffering of Christ. That was fulfilled repeatedly until it finally resulted in the cruel death of the cross. Now amazingly, Caiaphas, the wicked high priest, made uh, the same kind of announcement about Christ, the same kind of prophecy. He says in John chapter 11, One of them named Caiaphas, being the high priest that same year, said unto them, Ye know nothing at all nor consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people that the whole nation perish not. So Christ's suffering was beyond physical hardships of life. And I don't think that the physical part, the physical poverty that Christ lived in had any part of a major concern for him. That it wasn't, many people are poor Many people are poor without unduly suffering. So it's not the poverty of Christ that that bothered him in any way. Rather, his suffering involves two much greater issues. First, his personal desire for his people. And that's shown in several places in the Scriptures. One is right there at the death of Lazarus. Uh, Caiaphas' prophecy that we just read came after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, and his response was the Jewish exasperation over the miracles that Jesus did and how they would explain them away. In John chapter 11, Jesus saw Mary and Martha, Lazarus' sisters, and his friends weeping in sorrow over his death. And Jesus came to that place with the knowledge of exactly what He was going to do. He was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. But in that moment, when He saw the sorrow, He had compassion on them. And the Bible says that Jesus was stirred in His soul and that Jesus wept. He groaned in His spirit. In Matthew chapter 9, every sickness of the people moved Him with compassion. And there He saw how Israel was like a sheep that had no shepherd, that they were wasted, they were dry, they were lifeless under the teachings of religious rulers. And so one day as he stood overlooking Jerusalem, his heart was broken over that. The people that God had chosen as his own were wayward. They were headed for destruction. And there in Matthew chapter 23, he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. Now that same compassion caused him sorrow when his disciples were slow to understand. Even Judas, who betrayed him, was treated like a friend. He was sorrowful over what Judas would do. Later in the garden, he agonized about his disciples' as they were unaware, seemingly uncaring of the pain that was in his soul. But at the right while they were sleeping, he was praying for them that their faith wouldn't fail. He was concerned about them. So he prayed for them, and although he knew that they were going to desert him and flee, they knew they'd be slow to believe his resurrection, but he prays that their faith wouldn't fail and they would be preserved to be with him in his heavenly kingdom. So Christ's desire for His people was part of the agony of His life. He dealt with sin on a daily basis with his, with his people. He knew their hearts. He knew what was in them. Personal wealth is nothing in comparison to the need of the soul. And Jesus knew that. And how unlike Christ people are when they preach a false gospel that it, this is all about personal wealth. And it's Christ's desire for, for us not to have a life of suffering, but to be wealthy and be, have it easy, and things would go well, I mean, easy for us in this life, rather than to follow the footsteps of Christ in His suffering. There isn't anything, hard. I, I can hardly think of anything, that's more degrading to Christ than to take His suffering and say, it doesn't amount to anything, He doesn't want us to live a life like that, when clearly the Bible says otherwise. Secondly, in His suffering, is His anguish for the approaching cross. Every day in his personal ministry, he knew the purpose for which he came. Every work that he did led to the death of the cross. Many of the people that helped him would not stand by him. There were no loud voices of protest when he was taken and unjustly tried and then beaten and put on the cross. They sentenced him to death. Nobody cried out, don't crucify him. So physical suffering, that would come, of course. They beat him and they nailed him to the cross. And though that physical suffering was a necessary part of what he did, it was by no means the worst of what happened to him. The very worst was the spiritual suffering. Because he knew the cross was approaching and that he would fulfill the psalmist cry, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And even in in his humanity, if he never exercised his divine foreknowledge, he still knew that was coming because he could read the Scripture. He wrote the Scripture. He wrote what the psalmist said. And so he knew it was coming. He authored the Scriptures. Isaiah prophesied, these are also the words of God. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not, Surely had borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Now, how many times had the rabbis read that? And yet they didn't understand. They missed a suffering Messiah. And so the people just lived in gross ignorance of what the Messiah would do when he came. And since none of them saw it, this meal offering then bears out another aspect of his life, and that is a life of rejection. He lived a life of rejection. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Now, I want to remind you that Isaiah chapter 53, even though it's written in the Old Testament before Christ came, yet Isaiah 53 is a millennial viewpoint. This is the time of the millennium when Israel looks back that they rejected Israel. Jesus Christ, when he came, they, they looked back at the way that they treated him. The more good things that he did, the more that he was hated. After every miracle, the plot intensified to kill, to kill him. He healed on the Sabbath, the, the common people rejoiced, but when he did it, that just ramped up the efforts of the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders in their plots to kill him. And that's because he threatened their power over the people. And what Jesus did was to go after that status quo religion. Now the sign of the meal offering pictured the humanity of Christ in that he should have been revered as the model of what man should be. But rather than do it, he offered a perfect life, he offered hope, but even though he did, he was thoroughly rejected. And his... His perfection. It's the very fact that he was the perfect man caused hatred because it exposed their glaring sins. How much hatred was there when self righteous men were shamed when Jesus said, Let one of you without sin cast the first stone? Imagine how much they were shamed. That's that's the exposure that they hated. Their sins were brought to light by that perfection that caused them to hate Him. So Jesus said in John chapter 3, This is the condemnation, that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest their deeds should be reproved. And that is exactly what the law is designed to do, to bring evil to light. And so when Christ lived the law perfectly, that's like blasting the sins of others through a megaphone. And so he was rejected. And yet, every meal offering that the Israelites brought was a sign of the perfect life of Christ. That's the sign of the offering. Next, we move to the symbols of the offering. Now, sign and symbol, that means practically the same thing, but I'm making a difference here because... Now we're going to take a look at the individual parts of the offering. So let's return to the chapter to see the parts. In verse number 1, there is fine flour, oil, and frankincense. In verse number 4, there are unleavened cakes. Those were baked. Part of them were burned on the altar. Part of that belonged to Aaron and to his sons in verse 10. In verse 11, it says there is no leaven and no honey. And so we see there, there are many moving parts to this offering. Each of them uh, affects spiritual understanding. In verse number 1, it says, if, if, and, and when any will will offer a meat offering under the Lord, his offering shall be of fine flour. So first in the offering is fine flour, and that stands for a well-balanced life. The fine flour is a well-balanced life. Now our minds... I think should go straight to Jesus' teachings in John 6, where he says in verse number 48, I am that bread of life. Verse 50, This is the bread which cometh down from heaven, that a man may eat thereof and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. How would Israel read the prophets? They have the Old Testament. How did they read the prophets? Would they read verses in Isaiah and relate that to the picture in the meal offering? For instance, Isaiah wrote God's words in the 28th chapter, and he says, Give ye ear and hear my voice, hearken and hear my speech. Bread corn is bruised, because he will not ever be threshing it, nor break it with the wheel of his cart nor bruise it with his horsemen. This also cometh forth from the Lord of hosts, which is wonderful in counsel and excellent in working. Can, can you see this? To make bread, wheat must be threshed. The stalk has to be bruised. The kernels have to be crushed. And so before it's good for food, it has to go through a refining process. Now, Use your mind, your brains. Are, are you thinking about Christ's life? going through a refining process. The bread from heaven had to go through the processes. That's the beating. It's the bruising. It's the crushing before He could benefit us. The gulf between us and God and heaven is just too great. And so Christ had to become man and go through a suffering life before He could reconcile us to God. That's going to be shown in another offering that we'll get to in more detail. But He he has to be broken down. He has to be threshed. He has to be beaten in order to reconcile us to God. The obedience of Christ must be proved. Bread is a staple. Uh, bread is the staff of life. And Jesus said if you eat the bread that came down from heaven, you will have life. Now, of course, when he said that eating means to partake of him by faith. The Lord's Supper for a Christian is symbolic of that. The bread symbolizes the staff of spiritual life. And so every time that you watch me break the bread, that shows you that Christ was beaten and bruised, that he was threshed. Now we look here and we see that it says fine flour. The meal is ground into fine flour. And I want want you to make sure that you get the distinction here. It's ground to a fine powder so that the coarseness of all the kernels is removed. That wasn't easy to do. You can't just easily smooth this flour, this wheat that you thresh into fine powder. And so it would take this constant grating and mashing in order to make that consistency even and smooth, just like talcum powder. Today we make tons of flour. I don't think any of you really think about what it takes to make flour. You go to the pantry and... Uh, some mechanical process has taken care of that, so you just go get the flour and you use it. You never think twice about that i mean you you open the pantry door you don 't think well, I wonder what it took to get this from wheat to flour. Never even think about that, but that 's not true with Israel. This is hard work in doing this they had to they had to put it on the uh, on the mill and the grinding wheel wheel, and then from there that 's not enough they have to put it in a mortar and pestle, and they have to grind and grind and grind it into this finely ground powder. Can you see how that making animal sacrifices is much easier? This takes intense labor. This is hard stuff. It has to be fine flour. But why does God want them to get it to the consistency of a powder? Well, it's because it's a picture of Christ's life. It speaks of the evenness of His life. Now, I want to to look first at how he got to this place of the best life that's pictured by the fine flower. It took grinding. A typical day in his life was to be surrounded by multitudes that came for healing. It would start out with one incident that maybe looks like just a random thing has happened. One person is healed, and so he goes and tells someone else something here has happened that's never happened before. I've been... I've been healed by this man who is named Jesus. Then two come. That two turns into four. Then you have twenty. Then you have a hundred. Then you have a multitude surrounding Jesus. So many that Jesus found himself hard to get through the presses of the crowd. People are always reaching out to grab him and touch him like the woman who had the issue of blood, who touched just the hem of his garment. And then you, you remember the story in Mark. How that Jesus was in a house and that house was packed. And outside in the narrow streets, there are so many people that nobody can move up and down the street. The traffic is terrible, it's clogged. They press towards the door of the house. Those that are in the back can't get closer, they can't get in. And so there are four men who, recognizing that problem, say, there's nothing, we can't get close, so what are we going to do? So they take a friend who's on a stretcher, and they carry him up to the roof of the house and proceed to tear the roof off the house to let a man down into the presence of Jesus. Many days were like that, constantly thronged. And how large were these crowds that followed Jesus? Oh, well, we know that he fed 5,000 5, men. Besides the women and the children. So there were likely more than 20,000 people that were there that Jesus fed. And then you know what happens when it's over? It's night, he's done. And so he leaves to get some rest. And only to wake up or to find out that they followed him across the sea to see where he went. To start the whole process again. Day and night Jesus went through this. So he's constantly being ground down right to the bone for them. And these are the same people that turn on him. The disciples wouldn't stand with Him in the hour of need. There's this constant sifting and grinding and crushing that goes on day by day by day. And what was He like through all of that? Constant, even. Have you ever read that Jesus was annoyed and became angry at the crowds? Were there days when Jesus was in a bad mood and He said, I'm not doing this today, just send them all away. I've got I, I to get some rest. I can't take time for this. You'll never read that. He knew what he would do. He knew what they would do. They were going to crucify him. So he's up to his neck in the constant press. Did you know that's reflected by the psalmist in Psalm 69? Where it says, Save me, O God, for the waters are come in unto my soul. I sing deep in deep mire where there is no standing. I am coming to deep waters where the floods overflow me. I am weary of my crying. My throat is dried. My eyes fail when I wait for my God. They that hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of my head. They that would destroy me, being mine enemies wrongfully, are mighty. Then I restored that which I took not away. Isn't that remarkable? That's a perfect picture of the continual sifting of Christ's life. And yet we find evenness. There is fineness. There's perfect consistency. He has a personality that's well balanced. There is no overbearing part in Jesus. There's not one part that's particularly good and the other part that's not so good. Oh, he's even, perfectly consistent. of course, we're not like that. We all have our quirks. We have our personality ticks that make us different and strange. We might be gentle and kind in one minute but you push one of our hot buttons and you'd better look out. We're going to bite somebody's head off. I was talking to Richard and Jorge a few weeks ago about their trips to the prison at Avenal. Both of them told me, we're not afraid to go there. In that prison, they are killers. they are men there. They're the vilest, worst offenders that have done unimaginable things. And both of them said, we're not afraid to go. So I, I said to them? Well, it reminds me of a Rottweiler. Uh, the dog can be gentle and lovable. Many people have them, but that dog is an animal. And that dog can go off at any time. He goes to his nature, and then it's too late. And then he mauls you, and he eats you. Now People are like that, aren't they? They're like, one thing one way, one way one minute, and You think that you know a person, that you got them all figured out, and then just an instant they're different. Put them in a different circumstance. Put them like you haven't seen them before. And in some other other setting, then they change. But not Jesus. If you saw him once, you saw him for all time. Even when he drove the money changers out of the temple, he did that with the righteousness of God. It was a sanctified anger that Jesus used. J. Vernon McGee said, he was a normal person. Actually, I believe he was the only normal person who has ever been on this earth. Sin has made all the human race lumpy, one-sided, abnormal. One part of our personalities has overdeveloped at the expense of some other area of our personality. Then he went on to say, Jesus was well-balanced. He had equal poise in all areas of his personality. He could drive the money changers from the temple. He could take little children into his arms. When he was 12 years old, the religious rulers marveled at his wisdom. When he began to teach, the people were amazed, saying, How knoweth this man letters, having never learned? Nevertheless, the Lord Jesus never appealed to his intellect for the basis of any judgment. He came to do the Father's will, and that was the motive for his actions. And I thought about that as I read it, and especially that part when he talks about being 12 years old. The Scripture says that he increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Why did he find such favor? Well, it must be his temperament. He's not the common 12 years old. Have you watched the 12s? What are they waiting for? They're waiting to get 13. And when they get 13, all of a sudden they become like Satan and the demons of hell in your house have come to live. I know that. I was 13 once, My my kids were 13 once. And you know something about your children? Every one of them is different. How many of you that have more than one child notices the difference in your kids? You notice that? How, how many times have you slipped up and said something like this? Why can't you be like your brother or your sister? If you've got three kids, I don't know what happens. Some, something goes wrong in the middle. I don't know what that is, but the, that one in the middle, there's always something wrong with that kid. And then you have four, they're alternating, alternating angels and demons. Personalities are different, temperaments are different. And Jesus had brothers and sisters. Do you, do you think that Mary didn't four or five times or a lot of times say to them, why can't you be like Jesus? And, and he put a lot of pressure on those other kids. I mean, he, maybe he didn't intend to, but he's even, he's consistent. And, and I might say he's also predictable. I mean, they didn't worry about leaving the house and warning him not to throw a wild party. Jesus is not going to do that. This is exactly what we need. We need a predictable Savior. Don't you need to know that when you go to Jesus, he's going to treat you the same every single time? Don't you, don't you need to know that when you sin, you go to him, he's never going to refuse you? He's not going to be mad at you. And He's always, He's doing this, making constant intercession for you. Don't you want to know that Jesus is there, that He never fails to be there, that He is the same yesterday, today, and forever? Now, do you get this? Fine flour, even, smooth, always consistent, no lumps, always faithful, always perfect every time. And so God wanted Israel to picture that by the grinding, the grinding, the grinding, until fine flour is made. And that pictures Christ's well-balanced life. So that's the first ingredient that we see. Fine flour. Now there's going to be some things that are added to this flour. And that'll fill it out. That'll give us a more complete picture of his life. At home we have plain flour. My wife uses plain flour. But then she, when she cooks my favorite fried foods, she uses a different flour. She has a seasoned flour that's called Kentucky kernel flour. I can't find it in the stores here, so once a year I order 24 boxes from the mill so that she can cook my favorite foods in this seasoned flour. That makes it better. So with this offering, we see other things that are added. But our time is just about out, so we'll stop with that. And this is just the, the great thing about looking at this, these offerings in the Old Testament. It just teaches you so much about Jesus. And I, and I hope that that blesses you to learn more about him. More about Jesus, let me learn. More of his holy will discern. Spirit of God, my teacher be, teaching the things of Christ to me. What can we say to that? But blessed be God for Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, for that evenness of his life, the fine flower, the consistency about him that we, that we know he's going to be the same every time. He's touched with the feelings of our infirmities. He has compassion for us when we come to him. He knows exactly what we've been through. He experienced it all. He knows how to deal with us, and it's consistent all of the time. Always forgiveness when we ask for it. We thank you, Lord, for the perfection of his life that's shown in this offering Help us, Lord, to be more like him. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Roanoke Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, roanoke Park, California,